Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. It's nice to be here. Um, I was just in Denmark, and while I was away, Sarah and Cindy talked, so thank you to both of you for wandering around the neighborhood and various other things you did together. Um, So we've been studying the Yoga Sutra, and I just wanted to make some general comments about um, our approach before we keep going further, just to just to keep in mind that there's a sort of a specific lens that we're looking at this text with. And, um, um, just to articulate that the, the view a little bit. Um, while I was teaching in, in Copenhagen, I, I was there for 10 days, and it, it's such a pleasure to go there alone and... Um, have time to read and study and practice and just feel fresh every day teaching because, you know, my meals are taken care of and everything's looked after, you know, and I can live out my fantasy of being a monk for 10 days. And, um, and while I was away, um, I was doing a lot of reading, um, um, in sort of the contemporary literature of what scholars are saying these days about religion and spiritual practice. Because um, I find it interesting to sort of um, keep rethinking um, how we can approach tradition in a way that's relevant for us today. And um, what, one of the people who's inspired me a lot is uh, someone named Robert Bella, who I encourage you to explore, and um, Daniel Dennett, who's kind of become a household name, I guess, now. Some of you might know, he writes a lot on artificial intelligence. And um, he gave a wonderful talk at a TED conference um, where he put up two slides. And the first slide was a gurney cow in England. Um, and you know, basically said, this is where we get milk. Uh, this is what a contemporary cow looks like. And shows the slide. And of course, you look at this cow, and this is the cow that we all recognize as a cow. And then he says, now we go back many centuries, and this is an aboriginal cow. And then you see kind of the original cow, and it really looks nothing like uh, a gurney cow. And then he brings the slide back again to the gurney cow and says, who designed this cow? And um, of course, the answer is, we did, right? And you could probably, if you were to take that further, put up slides of 
cats and dogs and many other um, friendly animals and friends. And um, the point that he was making is that religion is a lot like this, that even the great religious traditions um, are not outside of human manipulation. We create religion. And um, religion is a cultural construct and is always changing. No religion is ever finished. And sometimes my friends laugh at me when I tell them that I think of myself as a religious person. Um, and so while I was away, I was having to, to think to myself, what do I mean by that? You know. And in a way, I think of religion as, like each religious tradition, as a kind of stream where there's this conversation that's been going on for thousands of years in most cases. And it's a conversation about um, what life means and um, um, how we can deal with our impermanence, our temporariness, our emptiness, um, the fact that our life is structured by death, um, and some really smart people and committed people have been having this conversation for a long time and have also developed a vocabulary to have that conversation. And every tradition has its vocabulary, and that's part of what keeps some people out of the tradition is they don't want to um, or they don't know how to join in because they don't necessarily have the vocabulary um, um, but wherever there's been culture, there's always been religion. And probably there's no way to prove this, but we could guess that religion is created in a culture at the same time language shows up. Because in a way they're both um, dealing in symbols and dealing in a kind of shared cultural vocabulary. And there's no human culture that we know of that hasn't had religion. Um, human beings seem to have a need for uh, meaning and connection to um, something transcendent. For the gurney cow, you can't, I don't know, but probably the gurney cow can't have a meaningless life. Um, but we can have a meaningless life. Or we can have a life filled with meaning, or we can oscillate between those, which most of us do. Um, but we all want a connection to something greater than ourselves. And um, religion has maybe not changed so much in the last few centuries. Um, and now it's undergoing major changes because we've changed. And one of the biggest changes that's happened is in the last century, which is through our understanding of ourselves via Western psychology. Um, we think about ourselves in terms of layers of unconsciousness. We think about um, ourselves in terms of relationship. You know, for example, when somebody asks you how you are, probably um, after you connect in with how you might be feeling, you might talk about how things are going in your relationships. And that's a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, when you look back at the Buddha's teaching, um, you don't hear much about relationship. 
really. I mean, when we read Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, we're superimposing how this practice relates to our relational lives. But Patanjali doesn't really say anything about uh, day-to-day householder (coughs) relational living. Um, But I think in a way, and maybe this has to do with not living in community and not living outdoors, our sphere of attention is so hyper-local. You know, it's, it's here and with those really close to us. You know? And I think you know, what the liturgy describes, you know, growing up as a Jewish person, for example, sometimes I would you know, sit in synagogue and I would read the English translation of what we were chanting and I just couldn't believe it I mean you know this feeling of immense gratitude followed by trembling before the Lord and I would look around in the room and I would think is anybody here really trembling in awe or awesome you know this awesome sense of God and I you know I I remember I would look around does anybody really believe this you know (laughs) And the reason why I mention this is because a lot like the Gurney cow, um, we design religion. We design tradition. And in yoga, it's quite funny because when people use the word traditional, you know that means 20 years. (laughs) Right? Like, Surya Namaskara A, the sun salutation we just practiced for two hours, doesn't have any traditional... um, Um, descriptions past 50 years ago. We have no wall murals with sun salutations. Um, So the point is is that religion does not not come to us finished. We're part of an ongoing conversation. And, um, And that conversation can't ever be completed but a religion changes as it moves through different facets of the culture, as any spiritual teaching does. And so it's important as we move through the Yoga Sutra um, to, to look at how this is relevant in our life. And the next section of the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali is going to talk about, for the first time in the text, some details around what happens when we are meditating. And then he go, and then from those details, he then is going to talk about obstacles and hindrances that start arising in our practice. So I encourage you for the next month, if you don't have a meditation practice, I encourage you to really commit to a 30-minute sitting practice every day. So that as we start to read this portion of the text, you have a kind of visceral experience that you can relate to with the text. So it doesn't just become a kind of semantic juggling of words that seem clever. Um, Patanjali is trying to show you something about what happens in your own mind. And um, it's hard to see that when you're just working with the version of your mind you think you know. And to actually watch mind from a place of stillness and and to see if what he's talking about is true for you um, so that it's relevant in your life.
So we're on line 17 from the first chapter. And just to remember that this chapter is called Samadhi, um, which means integration. Are the lights bright enough? Yeah. yeah. If you can share, because there aren't enough to go around, that would be great. So line 117, uh, 1.17. Um, at first... Oh, so just to back up, I'm sorry. So Patanjali had just talked about um, how what's required to practice is non-reactivity, non-attachment. To open to experience without clinging to a view. And then he says, you know, when that's possible, you can start to see how awareness itself is not dependent on conditions. That it's a little bit like when you fly in an airplane. Um, So when I took off from, uh, we were in Frankfurt, taking off in Frankfurt, it was so rainy. And um, I was surprised that we could even take off. And so we flew up, and then you feel all the turbulence, you look out the window and the wings are wet, and then suddenly um, the sky's blue. You fly through all that turbulence, and behind the scenes, everything was blue. Everything was clear. And it's a little bit like this with mind, right? That um, Patanjali has just been trying to articulate in some way that purusha, or pure awareness, is like the sky. And even though the chitta vrittis, or the identifications we have to the uh, self-imaginings of mind, um, are constantly coming and going, behind that, there's a kind of awareness. But he's very careful of labeling it. Because even when we say awareness, it seems like we're reifying it, or thingifying it. Uh, Tony Packer says, awareing. Right? There is a wearing happening just like the sky is sky. And then Patanjali says, at first, the stilling process is accompanied by four kinds of cognition. The first is vitarka, which is analytical thinking. The second is vichara, which is insight. The third is ananda, which is the sense that everything is okay. And the fourth is feeling like a self. I think for those of you who have spent time on retreat, you'll have seen this so clearly. Um, As stilling starts to happen, the first thing that arises in the mind is analysis. We start naturally analyzing our experience. Oh, sensation is temporary. Right? We start to see impermanence. We start to see that that I am not the creator of all my thoughts. That thoughts, for example, seem to come and go just like sirens come and go, and streetcars and images and feelings coming and going, this constant parade in front of awareness. 
And naturally, the mind moves into a more analytical frame where we can start to sort of analyze different pieces of the puzzle. Maybe we'll notice, for example, that um, um, the breath gets really soft when the mind is quiet. So, right, like we notice these small sort of incidents, you know. And when that happens, vichara naturally arises, and vichara means insight. Um, the other word that's often used is uh, vipashana. Pasha is an I, and V means to look in, or to go in. So vipashana, or we usually hear vipassana, means uh, uh, to gain insight. So really, to, so, so look in a different way. And this naturally is the second thing that starts arising when we're practicing, is that as we start to get still, then we start getting some insight about what what's going on. And one of the classic insights is impermanence. That everything that shows up is temporary. And I say it to you, and you hear that, and it's sort of philosophical. But those of you who have had this experience where um, in stillness you really see that nothing is um, fixed, there's a kind of um, um, unshakable um, vision that one gets. And then we forget about it, too. But it can last for several hours or days where we really see how nothing that we're invested in is fixed, is permanent, is eternal, especially this. And of course, this leads to the second classical insight, which is dukkha. That whenever we try and make something permanent, dukkha arises. And dukkha is usually translated as suffering. Um, my current translation of dukkha, this changes every month, is restlessness. That, you know, the experience of dukkha is this kind of constant, all pervading restlessness that we feel. That, that somehow we're trying to fix things in a dazzlingly impermanent and transient world. Internal world, external world, either relational world. And the third classical insight is um, that nothing belongs to me or mine. And when this occurs, and this is, I I love this part, when this occurs, Ananda shows up, which is, um, it's always translated as bliss, and I always, there's something about that that sounds kind of grandiose, or I think we all have some fantasy around that word, bliss. Um, So Ananda really means just the sense that everything's okay. Everything is okay. And um, so if you can just resonate, especially those of you who've done retreat practice, you kind of know this experience that usually when you get a little insight into something, afterwards there's a sense of settledness that comes. This is called Ananda for Patanjali. And this leads to the fourth phase, 
Um, he says, um, and I, I just love this part, asmita. And then it feels like all this is happening to me. Right? So just when you get the insight that things are temporary and don't belong to you, you get the insight and then you get a sense that this is happening to me. And then sometimes you can feel a little bit special or usually we feel kind of spiritual and then we start having fantasies about starting a sangha and teaching and traveling to Denmark and giving workshops. So um, in my experience, I find these four phases very accurate. And it's really interesting to think of these phases. And like every developmental system, you can add or subtract at different times. Somebody smoking pot? <laughs> In here? <laughs> or are you just detoxing? <laughs> or is that me? <laughs> There's a joke that, that I, I was thinking about this week that really relates to this last phase of, of feeling like a self where um, there's a rabbi in a synagogue on a bima giving a talk. And um, in the middle of the talk, he has a huge insight. And so suddenly he says, I'm nothing. I am zero. I am nothing. I am just nothing. And the congregation feels it, you know. And people just start standing up as he's giving this talk about being nothing. And then it becomes contagious, and the cantor next to him really feels it. And so he just stands up, and he takes off his robes and his tallis and everything. He goes, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm zero, flat, nothing, empty. And then the janitor in the corner starts getting the feeling. He says, I'm nothing, zero. And then the rabbi says, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> and, and this is this is kind of a feeling that that happens, right? Is that there's a moment that we're nothing and connected, and then suddenly this part of the mind that it, this storytelling part of the mind called asmita gets freaked out that it it just wasn't needed, right? And so it comes back again in a stronger way. Freud had this saying in psychoanalysis that um, neurosis retreats in the face of analysis. That when you start analyzing a neuroses, it retreats and hides and becomes almost impossible to find and then shows up in the relationship which is where it's always hardest to find. Right? And we could say here that the self retreats in the face of stillness. So as we start to still, this self-making mechanism of the mind hides, but then it comes back in the strangest ways. Mm -hmm. And it actually takes quite a lot of vigilance to catch it. And um, I think this is why it's so helpful to practice with community 
and with friends and with a teacher and with good texts and with teachers, plural, because um, usually when um, the self retreats, the only way we catch it is when other people point it out. And maybe if we could say the West is offering something to yoga and something to the Dharma in general, it's this. It's our clarity of attention to relationship. And the way that we can use relationship to heal and to wake up, that's not a traditional practice. That's, a, that's something new. And that's something that Western psychology is gifting to the Dharma now. And so this sense of feeling like a self is always interrupted by others um, who can point out our self-centeredness. But again, that's a reading in here, and that's not what Patanjali is necessarily saying, because if we're reading this just as a meditation manual, he's also saying that for you in your formal practice to notice when content arises to see if you're referring it back to a self. And in the referring it back to a self, you're making a self. That's how you make the self. The self isn't there at the beginning. It's the, it's the, the presenting of the content back to something that creates that thing. You can't have an object without a subject. They're co-created. Uh, they're inter... They're um, dependently originating is the Buddhist term. Yeah. Later, Patanjali then says, after one practices steadily to bring all thought to a standstill... These four kinds of cognition fall away, leaving only a store of latent impressions in the depth memory. This is so cool. So, of course, he's talking about the sangskaras, right? So he's saying, you know, when, when these four kinds of thinking start to subside in our meditation practice, what's left is deep grooves in our memory. And it's interesting, for those of you who studied the Heart Sutra, if you read Red Pine's translation, it's, Red Pine's translation is very controversial. He takes some really big leaps, and one of the leaps is in his translation of samskara. He just translates it as memory. As memory. And you know, there's something about that that I think really resonates with me anyways. I think as a academic translation it doesn't work but you know to see how like what's left when analysis feeling like a self insight are not operating is depth memory and um, it's a kind of storehouse of memory is what's left yeah and then we're not going to get to it tonight, but Patanjali talks about how the moment of stillness 
that we experience that is free from self-absorption contributes to the depth memory. Okay? So unlike Freud, the Freudian unconscious, the depth memory is not fixed. Okay? So um, it's elastic, and it's, it's occurring in each and every moment. It's not like a storehouse, like a place, like a public store. What are they called, these public storage buildings everywhere, you know? It's not like behind the mine there's these cupboards, and you can just open them and put things in them and close them and lock them up. That the depth memory is also a contingent experience. So the depth memory is not a static place, just like the unconscious is not a place. There's unconsciousness, you see. And depth memory is triggered in conditions that come and go. And um, yet, the samskaras, these memories, um, are influenced by every moment. A moment is called a kshana, and this is how long a kshana is. One snap. Has anybody here read The Inner Tradition of Yoga? Great, great book. Um, if you read The Inner Tradition of Yoga, there's these cycles of the five kleshas. So it says that there are 64 of those cycles in one klesha, in one kshana. That's how long a moment is. 64. I mean, I've never measured it. Someone measured it, obviously, at some point. <laughs> this is a moment. And this is depth memory happening in these moments. So Patanjali, in a way, is just trying to slow down and just to watch how our experience is made up of these moments coming and going. And of course, you can't measure these moments. I mean, maybe there's someone who's sitting there going like this in their meditation practice. But I've never seen that. And the good news is that the depth memory is fertile ground. And so in the way we're meeting what's showing up now, we're planting seeds in the depth memory in every moment. And so the depth memory is constantly being turned over. And um, so, you know, our ideas, you know, 25 years ago about, you know, the fact that your life was mostly, you know, most of your patterns are set down in the first five years. I mean, this doesn't stand for Patanjali. And of course, modern neuropsychology doesn't buy that much anymore. Um, neurologically, you know, we're so plastic, we're so elastic, and every moment of perception is a moment of activity that's planting seeds in the depth of memory. So, any questions or comments? Yeah. Uh, Just in terms of the elasticity of the depth memory, Mm -hmm. is... Um, is that because our experience now reshapes our perception of, of that? Yeah. So it can change our whole idea of... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, so, it, well, there's different theories about it. Patanjali has an amazing theory about the samskaras in the fourth chapter, but we won't get to it yet. But 
you know, one idea is that we have four sort of um, influences in depth memory. There's nature, right? There's nurture. Um, there's past lives. My friend Chris Chapel says, because not everything fits in nature and nurture, you need a third category just to get your parents off the hook. <laughs> and, um, and then the fourth category is present experience, right? And all these flow together to keep the samskaras going. And in the fourth chapter, Patanjali kind of adds a little more to that that makes it way more complicated, but um, we won't get into that. Okay, I'll say one thing about that. Which is he adds this category where he says, actually, at bottom, the thing that keeps um, depth memory going at the most subtle level is having an object. And that when the object, when relying on an object, which also means creating a subject, stops, um, you do not contribute to depth memory kind of interesting and of course those of you who who are interested in neuropsychology and all the great work that uh, the Mind Life Institute is doing they're hooking up meditators experienced meditators to incredible computers to watch how in moments of stillness that part of the brain that is replanting um, seeds stops briefly So there are times where karma actually temporarily stops and there's no new pattern being created. And Patanjali says that only happens when the subject is not making an object. And all the way up until that point, we're planting seeds. And and that's really good. Because there's good seeds we're planting too. You know, it's not just greed and hatred and confusion and shopping. Hollywood so on and not to underestimate that the sangskaras are also you know culture pressing through us too that the sangskaras are all the the gender assumptions and linguistic assumptions and cultural assumptions that we bring to our moods and our feelings um, that the culture is operating through us too as depth memory. Susan? Does that not contradict what you just said about there not being a tradition, uh, that the tradition did not look at the context of relationship because the subject and the object, even if it's with the self, is still a relationship? Yeah, for sure. And that way of talking about relationships, for sure, at a purely psychological level, um, so in psychoanalysis, this would be like um, object relations, mm-hmm. you know, like internalized objects and so on, mm-hmm. but not in terms of the family, just in terms of kind of like the, the basics of the mind taking in ideas and then having them um, operate behind the scenes. So that way of talking about relationships, kind of impersonal in a way, but you never hear Patanjali talking about mother and father. You know, um, it's not there. Yeah. Um, but we can still use this model to talk about relational life. It works great. And um, let's see if it works. Yeah. 
Any uh, other comments, questions for me? Can, yeah. can you say a little bit more about deep memory groups? Like, could yeah. you give an example? Or is it is it talkable in that way? Yeah. Way? Can you... Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had moments where um, um, my son does something that drives me crazy, and I immediately say something to him, or I get mad at him, and the words that come out of my mouth are not mine. It was my dad. Hmm. It's like I'll say something and be like... <laughs> it's like I'll look over my shoulder. You know, Who just said that? You know, So that's just like an everyday example of depth memory, right? Um, another example could be, you know, when we're meditating and certain patterns arise that, for example, um, um, we've had um, a lot of aversion to in our life, like maybe sadness arises, and that's not something that, uh, that we're particularly good at working with. And um, because maybe we had, you know, two depressed parents and they're a parent, we've had depression in our family, or maybe the culture doesn't like us feeling sad because we live in some suburb where everyone is really happy and has perfect hair and cars and everything. So, you know, somebody meeting sadness in 1950 in one community might not look like someone in Parkdale meeting sadness. Because the, the sangskaras, the cultural sangskaras, influence the way we relate to the feelings that are showing up. And at another level, um, in stillness, um, there are just human patterns of attachment and aversion. At a human level, we just want pleasure. That's all we want. It's so embarrassing that we're animals and we seek pleasure and we'll do anything to keep pleasure going and um, you know and that's one of the worst phases of early meditation practice is sitting still and watching sensations arising and the teacher telling you not to do anything and then just watching how we want pleasure you know, we want to arrange our body to just keep having pleasure. And we'll do anything to not have pleasure. And that's why I always, you know, tell people, like, when you look really closely at aversion, it's actually attachment. Aversion is really attachment to pleasure. And attachment is actually really aversion. <laughs> right? So it's really interesting to see that at this basic, basic level. We just want pleasure, you know. So that's sangskaras. Um, yeah, you know, an example too, just to make it more complicated, is, is um, anger. You know, if, if you're practicing in Burma, or you're practicing in Thailand, or you're practicing um, um, in Japan, that, you know, Traditionally, when anger is arising in your practice, you should get rid of it, right? And, you know, the Western psychological model of how to work with anger is very different. You know, we see anger as something valuable, and we have places like the office of a therapist to express our anger in a way that it's not going to hurt people or cause damage. And um, so... You know, the, 
you know, those of you that, ha- that have done psychotherapy and meditation, you know that you go to your therapist to talk about anger, and they t- help you express it. And you go to your meditation teacher, and they tell you um, to go back to your breath. Right? So these are two competing worldviews, actually. And they both have something to offer. The Dharma's view on anger, you know, is really beneficial to our Western approach to anger that can actually keep a cycle going. Um, And yet the Western approach um, of really being able to drop into anger, especially for under-expressors, can be really healing because it can move the energy. So this is a place, too, to see that the samskaras have this cultural component of memory that's operating all the time, too. I don't ever listen to these talks, you know, that get recorded. Um, and once in a while, I'll, like, start listening. And there are some evenings where I'll be talking with a lot of cultural references, and I'll just be like, just get to the Dharma, you know? And then sometimes I'll listen, and it's just pure Dharma. And it's like, how is this relevant in our culture, you know? Um... Anna's not here tonight, but I asked Anna recently, what do you actually do for a job? And she said, I critique cultural production. (laughs) And I said, that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) And so in a way, I, I feel like it's really important as we're studying the Dharma, especially at this time, to really look at the cultural piece. And that's, you know, I don't know much about cultural studies, but when you study what's happening in mainstream culture, you're studying your mind in symbolic. This is our religion. And so we're studying symbol exchanges and what they say about us. And that's our mind. Um, So I think trying to keep this dialogue about culture in there as we study is really, really important so we don't divorce things so that the Dharma is really relevant. So I encourage you to practice. 30 minutes every day minimum. Sit still, watch the breath, and watch what happens in the mind. And let's see as Patanjali starts to talk about some of the things that show up, because he's about to get really detailed. Let's see if this is true for you. And if studying the theory can help refine your practice. Um, So that you don't always feel like a self. Because if it's true that we all want to connect to something transcendent, it means we have to forget about ourselves. And so we study the self enough that we can forget about it. And this is the heart of our practice, whether it's formal sitting or relational practice. Um, this is what we're doing. Any other comments, questions, concerns? Okay, let's finish chanting. <laughs>